Support for Class Dismissed comes from School Status. School Status is the only K-12 data analytics platform designed to turn analysis into engagement. To learn more about how School Status can change your school district, head over to schoolstatus.com. You are listening to Class Dismissed, Episode 69, and I'm your host, Nick Ortigo. Today, should we be rethinking what gifted education means? A Georgia school asks for parents' permission to paddle students as punishment? And the Library of Congress has a new tool for educators. Stay with us. Class Dismissed is the podcast that inspires educators through story. Each week, we cover some of the hottest topics and news in the world of education. Plus, we speak with a guest with a bright idea for education that you can apply in your community. This week, a USC professor gives us some tips on how to prepare K-12 students to write for higher education. Hello, everybody. Nick Ortigo here, and I'm joined by teacher extraordinaire Lissa Pruitt. And Russ Davis actually has the uh, evening off, but Lissa, how are you doing? I'm good. We were talking about how crazy, before we started recording, how crazy, um, and I'm going to say silly, <laughs> the idea of homecoming proposals. Because first off, they were wedding proposals that you like do something special. That's right. And then it became promposals. That's right. To so ask that, someone to prom. So like, that really know. was like once... You know, in your and high just, school, unless you have a junior. Just to clarify, this is like in an extravagant way. Right, right, right. right. And now it's expected for homecoming, mm-hmm. which like at is... at the middle school level. Even at the middle school mm-hmm. level. So it starts like, all right, so this is this is getting out of control. It is out of control. But this is where like kids basically have to go like wedding, you know, thought, you know, get on your knee and do stuff. Well, or not like, get on your knee necessarily, but like, you know... Do something clever, right. you know, like I think one kid gave another kid a, a fish in a bowl and was like, you're a great catch. Right. You go to Yeah, the undersea with dance me. with me. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, this is, I don't know, I just think this is like, this is getting really silly and it's also a lot of pressure and unneeded pressure on kids. It is. But Pandora's box is open. Can yeah. we stop this? Can we stop this on our own? So like, I don't think so. And let me tell you what I heard about the other day on Facebook. I have a friend that used to be a teacher with me and now she lives in, I want to say New Mexico. I think it's New Mexico. And so she was asking about birthdays. It's starting now with birthdays. So if your child has a birthday and you send your child to school for the day mm-hmm. and it's their birthday, other children that are friends with them are supposed to bring a balloon, a single balloon to school and they tie it to that child's backpack and someone else sees them and ties it to the backpack and that and is allowed. Yeah, really. And then <laughs> they go up. Yeah. yeah. No. So that, and then of course it's, if you send your child to school on their birthday and nobody brings them a balloon, gosh, that stinks, you know? That's, and that's distracting too. It is. It's and, distracting. But and you're right. Yeah, I can't you're, even believe it's allowed. Right. But I was reading all about it the other night because my friend was like, okay, what is the deal with the birthdays? Like we're new and do I need to go send balloons to school? Like, how do I make sure my child comes home happy on their birthday? Yeah. Crazy. Right. The we, school can intervene on the birthday balloon thing, and right. they need to. They need to. But You're as right. far as the homecoming asks, I mean, We need to stop the mat. Yeah, it's an outside of school. Outside, and yeah, what do you do? But, but I just feel like it's unneeded stress. Stress on these poor on boys. seventh yeah. and eighth graders, and then ninth and tenth. And it's one thing to have to do it like once in your entire K through 12 time yeah. you know for prom right. I, I can live with that i didn't even love it I, that was going on back in my high school back in the 90s and i was like this sucks 
Yeah, see, yeah. I that that did not happen. I did. I was not asked to prom like that. That was new. It's the internet's fault with what my it is. child. Like that was. That's when I started noticing and being like, really, and you know. But like he did this big prom ask last year for a junior prom, but I think the seniors don't do it. I think it's Good. Like a junior thing. Good. The seniors. So are I think smart. the seniors sent a text. Anyhow. Let's uh, let's jump into the uh, teacher's lounge. Oh, you know what? This one, I actually wanted to kind of go at it a little bit of a different way because I gave you a story to uh, look into about gifted education. And for those that don't know, you have a master's in gifted education. You've taught gifted for a few years. And um, I wanted you to kind of like read the story and then tell me this is hogwash or this is on the right path. Well, I'm going to start by saying that our gifted education program across the nation is in trouble. Like everybody better listen up. And I, yeah. I know it's one of those things that doesn't affect everybody. So if you don't have a gifted learner in your house, then you're like, oh, who cares? You know, mm-hmm. um, there is a bit of a stigma with gifted education because truthfully, historically, it has been a little one sided towards white um, children and then often further than that, male white children. Like you're so, saying, uh- Outside, other groups don't get screened. That's right. Well, yeah, they're just not as easily identified. And, and so there, you know, there's some problems there. There's, so there are times in history where the gifted education system have been, uh, there's a little bit of a black eye there. But they've made changes and whatever. But if you don't have enough children screened in your school that, uh, that, I, that are identified as a gifted learner, then you don't have that teacher unit. If, if there are enough children that they can be absorbed by an existing gifted teacher, then you will cut your third gifted teacher and just have two on staff. Well, so it's a, it's, a, it's a dangerous job. Yeah, really. Because it's not good job security. It's not. Yeah. A gifted teacher, I would imagine most gifted teachers at some point, they had to step back into a different role because mm-hmm. funding was not there or because... They didn't meet, you know, the screeners and stuff. You know, you didn't get as many kids in in second grade as you had go out in sixth grade. Mm -hmm. So if you're not in the gifted realm, I just wanted to put that out there first. Secondly, to be screened as a gifted learner, it starts in second grade. They usually use IQ tests and cognitive ability tests and things like that. And that's usually the sole indicator. And each state has its own mandates of what they describe as a gifted learner and Teacher referrals are the first line. Mm-hmm. So if you have a teacher and that second grade student that they think this child would be a great candidate for the gifted classroom, even though that teacher has not been trained on gifted learners at all mm-hmm. and does not have the qualifications at all, but they still say, I think so. Usually it's a well-behaved child. Usually it's a bright child that turns things in on time and does well on tests. That's usually what they're shoving in the gifted way. But so many gifted children do not meet that at all. In fact, Russ, who is not here with us today, Mm -hmm. I would imagine if I was Russ's second grade teacher, I would... Well, not me, because I would recognize Russ. Are you about to evaluate Russ? I have already evaluated Russ, but... If I were his second grade teacher, I would have referred him for the gifted program. But maybe a, another teacher that had no training in gifted students would not realize that Russ is not the typical why, gifted. Why would they not realize it? Well, because Russ probably didn't apply himself greatly in class because he probably was like, you know what? 
this is all baloney. I know the answer. Yeah. Why am I going to write this paper? I think you, know, I think you might be right. So I think I am right. Yeah. So I don't know. I feel bad. We can't has, talk about him. He's but not he here has to said himself. things, you yeah. know, a little bit yeah. about how he didn't really apply himself. But that that's not at all a measure yeah. of it. Right. Yeah. So those children get overlooked. Sometimes these children, gifted children, they can be a little high verbal. Uh, maybe, you know, in some ways they kind of can get under the teacher's skin because they're constantly chirping in and chiming in about things, you know, that may often seem off topic, but Mm -hmm. they're not. They're kind of indirectly related. Anyway, so when you're relying on teachers referring kids, they're they're not, they're they're definitely going to under-refer. They're going to be children that fall through the cracks, definitely. So so what the article say, is that what the article say? So this article is talking about how in Montgomery, Maryland, they've changed the way they are slotting kids into Montgomery County, Maryland, just for the... Oh, Montgomery County, Maryland. Sorry. They are changing the way they they go ahead and identify children as gifted. They are not solely relying on an IQ test. Um, They are not solely relying on class performance or teacher evaluations Mm. at all. In fact, what they're doing across countywide is instead of taking their highest achievers countywide, which is normally how it goes. Right. Instead, they're changing it and they're looking at the outliers in each school. So if you have a child, maybe a Hispanic child, Mm -hmm. that is doing better than most of their Hispanic peers, Mm -hmm. there's less than 20 of them, then they're taking that one. And so they may not have rung the bell on the test like maybe a white male has, but they're taking them into the gifted program because they're saying, We want a more diverse gifted studies program that's not going to be based solely on test scores. Hmm. Um, They they do have to meet certain requirements, but we want it to be more diverse. And we're under evaluating these kids. So we're not going to take teacher referrals anymore. I mean, we will, but we're not going to solely base it on that. And we're not going to solely base it on a test, a standardized test or an IQ test. We're not going to solely base it on their grades because some of those kids may not have straight A's. They might have A's and B's, but they're truly intelligent and can truly express it in a different way in a gifted classroom. So a lot of schools across the nation have magnet schools, and that's a really tough thing because there's only a certain number of spots and you want your child to get in that school. And what if you have a sibling in that school and then this sibling doesn't get to go to that school? So it it can be a bit, you know, tricky. And I think the only negative thing that I, I, I like what this article is doing. I like, I think it's great. I think it has to start somewhere. They have to, they have to quit. The nation as a whole has to quit looking at standardized testing. Right. They have to, you can totally, Look at it as a component, as one component, but it cannot be the end all be all. That is not fair to everyone. No way. So I like that. But the only thing that I thought was sad is it did talk about how there are some students that are already in this magnet program. They're already in the gifted studies program and now they are not. So and I'm I'm, I'm like reading (laughs) while you're talking. So but I am listening to you because I'm reading about like, did they get results? And apparently they did. It says more students from every demographic group were selected uh, for the 13 special schools this year because the number of seats increased, but the overall makeup of the pool changed. So it says in 2016, 23% of the students in the county's elementary school magnet programs um, were black and Hispanic. And 
this year, 31% were black and Hispanic. Right. And the important fact is that that earlier 20%, they actually population-wise make up half of the student body. Right. And so, so and, and then it says the, the white share of the accepted population also increased by 3%, but the Asian share of the population took a hit at eight points. Yes. And so, you know, I don't know what to draw from that, but that's that's what it says. Right. So I think what happened is there are some Asian students that were screened or they were put up for the program by their classroom teacher, and therefore they had they tested well and they had good grades. But since they're trying to make more of a diverse thing and they're looking at just neighborhood schools and, and they're also looking at, okay, we want a more diverse group, we want to include Hispanics and African Americans, then they're saying that the Asian population actually dropped in the gifted studies program because there were more in there than really qualified based on these new new standards yep. or guidelines. I and guess. so there was a dad that said, you know, look, I'm really upset because my yeah, daughter it's, it's not without is, this controversy. Oh clearly. yeah, no, yeah. there's definitely. And then there's people whose children are in the gifted studies program that say, well, wait, are they going to water down the, the, the program, the program now? Yeah. Or are, are we going to be doing, because we don't necessarily have the highest performing students standard wise. We don't necessarily have, but, but anybody can answer that question to say, that when you do, when you have a, a mixed group of abilities mm-hmm. and there's the highest child in the group and then there's someone that's a close behind, it's never going to hurt the highest child in the group. But the lower one is going to rise. It's That's that's proven over and over again. Right. So it's not going to, so these people that are worried about their high achievers and it being watered down, I don't think that's what's going to happen. If anything, there might be some broader discussions. There might be some better debates and things where you're seeing more of a different point of view than your own. Right. You know, you're looking into somebody else's sandbox. Um, and I think it's going to help the morale of every neighborhood school that funnels into these magnet schools to have better representation in well, these magnet schools. It's certainly uh, worth watching what ha- takes place over there in Montgomery County, Maryland. Um, and uh, thanks for diving into that for me. <laughs> No um, the, uh, let's kind of go to the other end of the spectrum. I saw this story out of the BBC, um, and it got some traction elsewhere, but it's talking about Georgia as in the state Georgia here in the United States. And, um, so apparently there was a school there and I, this is happening in a lot of places, but they sent home a form to basically say, will you allow us to administer corporal punishment on your child? Um, still 19 states, um, allow this. Um, but I think, you know, sometimes those that don't live in those states, myself included, I grew up in Virginia where this wasn't allowed, finds it shocking that, you know, this is still happening. Does, I don't want to put you on the spot, but does this still happen as far as you hear? Like corporal punishment, is that still a thing? And like, you're in a large school district, does that still happen? I, I know of a private school in this area that does it. Yeah. Um, you know, that, that is one of those things. Because Mississippi, that, we're in Mississippi, and they are, they do allow it. Right. And that's one of those things that it's not just schools or states that are different on their stance on this, but it's also individual households. You know, right. as a teacher, you hear all the time, well, now we don't spank at our house. Or then you'll hear, well, we do spank, mm. you know. It is a, that, that's such a touchy subject because everybody feels differently about it. Um, I personally, if I had to be a principal that paddled or an assistant principal that paddled a child, um, I I don't think I could do it. Well, and so this form too is it kind of like, 
the corporal punishment will be administered using a three-strike policy. Mm -hmm. Um, If you do not allow this, your child can be suspended. Um, The form goes into the details. The student will be taken into an office and the door closed. The student will place their hands on their knees or a piece of furniture and will be struck on the buttocks with a paddle. And then it's in, in italicized font right below that. The paddle is to be made of wood and should not exceed... 24 inches in length, mm. six inches in width, width and th- three quarters of an inch in thickness. Um, no more than three licks should be given. This is weird to me. It, it is a little outdated in my opinion, but I, I don't want to offend anyone, but this is just my personal opinion. Well, it's fine at I your think, home. That's that's one thing, but this is a school district. Yes, I, I agree. Um, and also, here's here's the main thing I have to say. If they are sending home letters that say, yes, my child is allowed or no, my child's not, then just do away with it altogether because it's not going to, if you're, if you are laying a hand on a child, if you are spanking them yeah. at school as a reason to maintain order in your school, and they know that there are other children in that school that do not get sent to the office for the same thing. I, I just feel like then just do away with it altogether. And if you're a family that says that the form should say, hey, <laughs> we want you to let us know if you're having trouble with our child and we will handle it at home the way we want to handle it at home. Yeah. You know, and we promise you that if spanking works with our child, then that's what we'll do if our child is giving you trouble at school. It needs to be something, you know, I wish that every parent had to say, I promise I raise my right hand and promise that if you contact us from school and say that you're having trouble with our child, that I will listen to you and I will take your side and I will do what's best for my child. And I promise you that the, a punishment will be rendered, whether it's grounded or being taken away from an iPad or or if they choose to spank. You know, that's yeah. the problem is there's not enough people at home that are enforcing what needs to be enforced. And then the problems trickle into the school zone and then... You're trying to handle kids that have no, I mean, probably if you're spanking at school, they're probably not getting spanked at home, yeah. right? So if well, the principal is spanking I mean, that child, but if you're signing for a principal to paddle your child, yeah. are you going to paddle your child again when they get home? Yeah. Nope. Yeah. So that, so again, I just feel like, no, they need to handle it at home the best way that their household handles it. According to the superintendent, um, about 100 forms have been returned so far with about one-third of the parents giving their consent. I just, I don't know, and it hurts my spirit, Nick, to think of a child going into a room with the door shutting and them having to stick their rear end out. Like, that's mm-hmm. just a, it's too personal of an area, yeah, in my opinion. I agree, I agree. All right, well, just keeping you up to date with what the what the word is. Uh, another tool, I, I gave a tool last week about the iPhone thing. I got another tool this week. Um, it's not, it's not a, it's not a technical tool though. Well, it kind of is. Um, the library of Congress, um, and I'm going to put the link in the um, website, but they have all these teacher resources. They've just rolled out. They posted a bl- on their blog on September 4th. So not that long ago, um, that they have these resources that they've built specifically for classrooms. Um, so they have access to basically everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they just kind of, when you go to the link, you'll see it, but, uh, there's some different little, um, activities and stuff that may work in your class. So, uh, definitely worth, worth looking at. Just wanted to let people know that's out there. Are you ready for the, uh, bright idea? Yes. We are talking to a college professor who teaches at USC and he works with freshmen or he has worked with a lot of freshmen and he says he's often reteaching them how to write. Mm. 
And so we're going to dive into that a little bit. Our guest in today's Bright Idea segment teaches business writing and communication at the University of Southern California. Dr. A.J. Ogilvie has been working with students in higher education for the past 10 years, and he's here to talk about preparing K-12 students for writing in college. A.J., welcome to the show. Thanks very much for having me. I am really excited to have you here because you have spent a lot of time working with freshmen right as they come out of the K-12 through system. And, and generally speaking, before we dive into this, I want you to give me an overall grade of the writing ability of freshmen the first day they walk into your classroom. I know so there's that, outliers. Right. And that that's a really interesting question. And I want, I, I will answer it directly. The, the tough thing is it, you, you, what you bring up is the issue of actually giving some, can you accurately represent someone's writing ability with a grade? And so I, I will give a grade and then I'll also say I view all of my, you know, all of my students as developing writers and um, learn uh, writing is something that uh, is a lifelong process. And so even my classes, what I say to students is that uh, this is one stop on your journey as a writer. You are not a perfect writer after taking uh any writing course. Um, so to answer your question, I, I give students a, a B or B plus. And what I think is um, a few of the key things that I think students, and rather than talk about their writing necessarily, what I'll talk about is their writing and their thinking about writing. Because that's what the, the first year classes are really getting at is getting underneath um, the choices students are making about writing. Ooh, and, what do you mean by that? You feel like they don't believe in writing. They just don't, they're energetic about it. What do you mean by thinking? Yeah. Well, you bring up that. So that's another issue when we talk about writing ability is the, the emotional dimension of uh, m- many people and many students find writing really uh, sometimes daunting. Um, I always talk about the the vulnerability that goes along with writing that when, you know, when you share something you've written, with someone, you, you feel like you're really opening yourself up. Um, and so one of the things that I'm referring to about like the, the thinking about writing or is uh, what kinds of assumptions do they make about writing? So one, one really key assumption that often students bring, I mean, many students bring to a first year writing class is that all writing is the same across all different contexts and, and what we call genres. And, and genre is just like kind of a somewhat fancy word for types of texts. So um, a personal statement to get into college is a genre, a cover letter to get a job is a genre, an op-ed in a newspaper is a genre. And one of the things that often students bring with them, uh, an idea that they bring with them to the first year writing course is that the way that I've written in high school is the same way that I'm going to write here. Um, Or if they're starting a, um, if they're starting a liberal arts degree that the writing that I do in my philosophy course is the same writing that I'll do in my English course or the same writing that I'll do in my history course. So what are some of the, the bad habits that you see as a student comes from that K through 12 to, to college? There was a really fascinating study um, done by Nancy Somers, uh, a, a writing professor at Harvard, I, I think in the 90s. And they followed students coming into Harvard as first year students and then over four years and one of the habits that they identified um, that was something that 
needed to be re-examined and to have students think differently about is this idea of, of being a novice. And so a lot of a habit that some student writers can bring into the first year writing class is the idea that they are done learning about writing. Or um, I took uh, an AP test that gave, you know, and I got a five. And so I'm, I'm a really good writer. Mm -hmm. And what happens is that, um, as you can imagine, that the more uh, rigid you are in terms of writing ability, the more you, you think you've got it, <clears throat> the less open you are to new ideas. What are you and your colleagues thinking? I guess you, you've been doing this for about 10 years um, at, mm -hmm. at the university level. Do you guys look at each other and say, man, these kids that are coming out of high school, like we're having to kind of start further back in teaching writing than we were expecting? We thought there would be more of a, of a foundation? Or do you feel like the foundation's there and you're just trying to get them to the next level? You know, and this is this is a really cool question, and there's so there's a massive discussion going on now about um, what are often called remedial writing courses in college, and it's like the, so first year students will come in and they'll take sometimes they'll take a diagnostic, and there's different kinds of tests that that try to look for what you're referring to, like the foundation, and and based off this test these first year students, this test might say to the faculty at the university, well, these students are underprepared. And so rather than start in the classic college composition 101 course, they'll start in like a, they'll call it like a, a 100 course. And often students don't get credit for that course. And also students know that they've been put into what's considered a remedial course. And so this is an ongoing question uh, about what is what 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 is a, a, a critical foundation or like where stud should students be um, in terms of their writing ability to 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 write well in college? And I, I you know, I I don't have a good answer to that, um, partly because all the kinds of writing that students are doing is it's so different than what they do in their in their high school classes. And so to me. Rather than use the word foundation, what I describe it is like habits of mind. And one is like an openness, um, a willingness to revise and uh, uh, a resilience of, you know, when you when you get feedback and uh, and patience. And um, uh, so a lot of the writing assignments that I've done in my first year classes are kind of designed around projects. So what that means is that it's not just kind of like an assignment that says, okay, write me an essay and turn it in on Wednesday. It's, it's a long, uh, process that goes in phases and where you get feedback. And, but when we're talking about, so like when we're talking about like foundation, we're talking about the sentence level. Um, you know, that, that's a really difficult thing to diagnose. Um, because when you write, you're always writing about something. And so sometimes when we write about something we know nothing about, we write really poorly. That this is true, I, and I would struggle whenever I would have a news story I needed to write that wasn't really a big news story. Those were the hardest ones to write because you were like, uh, "What am I going to say about this?" And so, I totally right. And what, isn't it? And 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 when you were writing that that news story, you had written how many stories before that? A thousands or right? Yeah, I mean, sev and, several and, every and, day. And, right, and the idea is that that's a natural part of writing. You know, that when like whenever there's a new variable, whether it's a new kind of text or a new subject matter, it's really natural to, to, to struggle with it. I mean, do you, do you find that the challenge with new students is more on the, the grammar side and the sentence structure side or more on the creativity and um, the flow? 
That's a that's another really interesting question. So one of the things with grammar and uh, first year faculty really have to we we've um, to generalize like we've really had to develop a language and a way of thinking about grammar is that um, grammar also means a lot of different things. And so if we're talking about sort of like punctuation in terms of grammar um, or if we're talking about grammar in terms of like syntax and whether a sentence is clear to the reader, these are, that's almost a more high order, higher order way of thinking um, about clarity and about meaning than, than just, you know, have I put this comma in the correct place? Um, you know what? I think generally it, the thing that I find most challenging for students and the thing that I think is where we, where I would, I, w- I will focus on grammar and I will focus on creativity, but there's two big things that I think um, all writers at every level are struggling with, but especially at the first year level is one is um, what does it mean to know who your reader is? You know, and another way we talk about it is audience analysis, mm-hmm. but, um, and as a reporter, as a journalist, like, isn't the, the audience just primary in how you think about what you're writing? Yeah, for me, absolutely. And and we always really have to, I, I don't want to sound pretentious about it, but we were tra- trained to, to write on a, a lower level because you have to assume that, you know, some of your audience may not be as well educated as others. Yeah. And I think I'm going to, I'll reframe, yeah, like reframe lower level, like, cause I think you're right. And it's like, but there's a, there's a whole movement called the plain language movement. And, um, and the idea of plain language is just that it's about readability and usability. Um, and, uh, a metaphor I often use in class is that an iPad can be used by an eight year old or an 80 year old. Mm-hmm. And the eight-year-old doesn't think it's, doesn't go, oh, the iPad, this is too difficult for me to use. And the 80-year-old doesn't say, oh, this is too simplistic. Or So um, what I really struggle with with students is getting them to see that, like, there's, there's a person on the other end of the text that you're writing. And the number one priority is that they are able to understand what, you know, what you're saying. So that's the that's a huge thing is like writing for an audience and understanding that the reader I call it reader centric writing, and then the second thing is um, just that that revision like the, the the belief in revision. You have an audience right now with our show uh, full of K through twelve teachers. Um, if you could tell them one thing that you would like them to to focus on with their students before they get to college, or maybe one or two things, what would that be? Yeah. And that, so the first thing I'd say, too, is I would love to hear from them <laughs> about what, you know, what what I should be doing differently, truly, too. So, like, um, I, I'll totally answer the question. But I also think um, in so in this discussion of like the, the, the transition from high school and, you know, K-12 to college, I really think college professors need to list. We, I, I think I actively need to know more about what's going on in K-12. And, and the other thing is, like, I know that high school English teachers or anyone teaching writing in high school has particular constraints that often are, there are fewer constraints than, than I, than, than college professors have. But so um, if possible, because I know that there's testing and there's all, you know, metrics and things, um, you know, particular things that need to be hit. But one of the things is um, 
we know that people develop as writers when they have authentic audience, audience driven, um, purposeful uh, writing, act, writing uh, performances. And so what I'm getting at is like, like, how do we make the students write things or how do we have students write things that are as real to their own lives as possible? Um, a simple example is, mo- you know, most high schools have a, a, a school paper and a, a really great example would be having students just write, submit an op-ed to the high school paper because it's the audience is their peers. There's real, you know, that they, they, maybe they have a particular concern or issue that they think would be well addressed in an op-ed and um, a, a live audience as well. Well, so if I'm hearing you right there, but are you saying they should write about what they know? So if I'm an eighth, I have an eighth grader, would I, would I say write about playing Fortnite? Is that, is that kind of what you're getting at? Yeah. Yes. And no, that's exactly the, the only thing is that, so um, one interpretation of this idea of like the, the students should write should what they know is, is that, and I've done this too, is that they write personal narratives and that, that there's nothing wrong with the personal narrative in and of itself. The challenge is, is that, um, often it's hard to describe who the audience is for a personal narrative. So if we re-describe the personal narrative as like creative nonfiction, then there's, there's lots of places where we find creative nonfiction and, you know, like this American life is a good example. Like those are, you know, those are texts that in a sense, like they're episodes, but they're texts for a particular audience. So Fortnite, Yeah. But, or would be really cool for an eighth grader to write about, but maybe we find a new genre that they would write in. So it could be some sort of like a business pitch for a new kind of, of Fortnite experience or something um, to investors or um, ex- making an argument in the New York Times that Fortnite, you know, imagine you're writing to parents, a stu- an eighth graders writing to parents that Fortnite is, is a really great thing. Um, I like that. So, yeah. The other thing, too, the, the, is that one of the reasons we should write is, is that we, want, we write because we want to know something. And so it's okay to write about something that we don't know a lot about as long as we're really well supported. And, and, and um, do you find that, that by the time these students are getting to, to your level and to the university level that they're able to, to document that and show how it's supported and, and so forth? Or do you find that's kind of lacking? I find that what we want students to do is to write knowingly. Um, so for you, like a kind of a veteran journalist is your uh, uh, knowingly and unknowingly um, when you're writing, uh, making decisions and, and making choices. Um, and you're making, you're, you're like making inferences about your reader. And so you're making informed choices, but knowingly. Um, and so what we want to get students to do is when you talk about like citing a source, for example, or um, using an anecdote in a particular kind of text is what, what I want students to be able to do is explain to me why they made that decision. You know, what are, why are you citing an economist, you know, from the university of Chicago? Um, what, 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 what would that do for your reader rather than have students just kind of write by numbers and follow rules? What is your hypothesis on how social media has affected the way we all or, or students even write. And, and I say that because 
you know, when you and I were growing up, we didn't necessarily have um, the ability to text message or post on social media. So in a way, we weren't really writing all day long on our phone. But at the same time, when you're limited to characters sometimes and so forth, and, and for the for speed, we're also using a lot of shorthand. Like, how has that affected proper writing? This is a fascinating um, question. And so empirically, from my own observation, I do not see um, social media or texting, um, the kinds of writing that happens in social media on Facebook or on Instagram or on, um, or on a text message. I do not see students bringing that kind of thinking to the writing that they're doing in my classes. So a, a, a simplistic way is that I've, I don't get, you know, LOLs or I, I don't get um, uh, hashtags. Now you might say, well, is there any like challenge in how they're like, are they able to think longer or more deeply? That That's a difficult question. But to to what you just said, I, um, and I know there's lots of research out there and uh, I, I'm not totally up to date on what has most recently been said, but when when you and I were growing up, we only wrote in school. Right. And if and, we wanted to talk to someone, we picked up the phone and called them. Yeah. And, and I, I think I had a pen pal at one point, right? <laughs> um, but, but that didn't last very long. And so, and I would argue that the writing, despite it's being short or being crude the, or not crude, but like kind of sometimes, you know, kind of coarse or rough or um, that's, there's some complexity to, to all of that. You know, like even on Facebook, there's really different, like what you write in, me- in Messenger is different than what you write on someone's wall, which is different than you write in a comment. And um, those are relatively like complex kind of genres. And so I, I think it's good. Uh, I-, I don't think it's um... now attention and um, kind of being able to spend uh, su- like uh, sustaining your attention on one particular problem. How- like that is a how has that been affected by social media is, is a different thing. Um, but, you know, I, I've almost feel like you were alluding to, yeah, this is, you know, I, I think, I do think overall that it's good. Well, uh, Dr. AJ Ogovia, I know we could probably talk to you all day long about this. Um, but if, yeah. if, if anybody wants to keep up with you or, or has to ask you a question, is there a place you like to, to kind of hang out online, socialize? Are you on Twitter or Instagram or anything like that? I'm not on the I, Twitter or Instagram, but um, I'd, I love email, so I'm at um, uh, a ogilvy um, at usc.edu. Great, and, and uh, I, I'd be I'd really love to hear from K twelve um, teachers and love to hear what they're doing in their classes because I'm sure they're doing really creative stuff that I just that I'd love to hear about. Well, we really appreciate your time, and, and hopefully somebody will reach out to you uh, to uh, interact. Wanted to see if you are ready for our pop quiz. I am ready. All right. First question. If students could only go to school for one subject, which subject should it be? Rhetoric. That's, and, that's a first for us. So you got to go into it. Um, and rhetoric has a negative charge to it. We think of rhetoric in the political sphere of oh, that's just rhetoric. But um, uh, the rhetoric is the study and art of how humans use language to make meaning and do things. And um, so 
as th- th- regardless of what happens with AI or regardless of what kinds of knowledge is become more or less valued, you will always need to know how to use language to make meaning to, to make things happen. So, so you are an optimist about rhetoric, I take it. I am. I am. I think that language is is central to being human and um, understanding how language works and learning how to make language work is is a central part of um, kind of fulfilling a lot of your own you know, and, and, like anything you want to do in life will require language. What are we not teaching in school that we should be teaching? This is a little bit of a cliched answer, but um it's failure or getting things wrong and um and and kind of pausing on that moment of failure or getting things wrong and guiding students through the feelings that are associated with that and i know this might sound a little um you know maybe new agey or west coasty but just saying like yeah what does this feel like to, to to be wrong and and like how do we move you know what what are like what are the next steps to let us to allow us to move move out of this and into the next thing What does every child deserve? Every child deserves equitable housing, food, health care. What's the biggest challenge for today's educators? I think it is learning to talk about how what we do is valuable in a context that um, more or less actively resists resist seeing the value in it. And I, I'm not a, I'm not a cynic, but I just think that like we learning how to like really talk about how, how teaching and learning and, 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 and students are just so central in a, um, you know, in a very uh, kind of money and results and data driven world. What's the best gift to give an educator? Time. I, I think that, uh, that most of us would love more time with our students. Um, sometimes, or the other way I think about this is time or, or smaller class sizes, right? I, I, I know a few faculty or students who or teachers who would say, I, you know, I wish I had, I, I have too much time with my students. Most of us think, wow, if I could spend another 30 minutes with that student, that would be great. Which teacher changed your life? I had a uh, high school English teacher named Miss Beeling, and Miss Beeling introduced me to a way of, of analyzing and thinking about cultural phenomena in texts and movies. And I opened up a world that I, I never realized that, of course, you can analyze Great Gatsby in a particular way, but I, that you could analyze Jurassic Park in, in a really interesting analytical kind of literary way. Um, she just made learning seem or learning seem like something edgy and, and cool and interesting. And last question, pen or pencil? Pen. I, I think that um, maybe I realize that with pencil, I have this sort of implicit sense that this thing is ultimately going to be um, need to be sharpened. <laughs> and so a pen, I feel like I'm... Um, I've got more time and I, I, I can focus just on writing and not worry about what am I going to do when, when it goes dull. So uh, a pen. AJ, we appreciate all you do to uh, 
further writing and, and further the education of uh, students uh, over there in uh, the USC in Southern California. Um, I want to tease what we have coming up for next week. I've actually asked you to come back on the show um, because as I was doing my research for this show, I stumbled across um, a paper that you wrote um, where you were making the argument for the liberal arts degree. And I feel like you have a really strong argument. So if anyone wants to hear that, be sure and tune in uh, next week. Uh, Dr. AJ Ogilvie, again, I appreciate your time. Thanks so much, Nick. That's going to do it for this episode of Class Dismissed. We want to hear from you. So if you want to send us an idea or a comment, remember you can always email us at info at classdismissedpodcast.com. We're here to support educators, but we need your support as well. So if you like what you heard today, please be sure and hit that subscribe button. And we'd also love it if you'd leave us a five-star review. Don't forget you can connect with us on Facebook at facebook.com slash classdismissedpodcast or on Twitter to search for us by typing in Class Dismiss. On behalf of Russ with School Status and Lissa representing all the teachers out there, I'm Nick Ward. Go and I'll talk with you next week. Class dismissed.